One of the most well-known prophecies in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 7. It's the beginning of that prophecy that Aaron read just now. Um, Chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah wrote this about 800 years before Jesus was born, but Christians believe this is a prophecy about Jesus. It's quite a big deal, actually, for us in Christianity that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, uh, Luke writes about how the announcement was made to Mary by the angel. He says, from verse 26, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus, and he will be great. And will be, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the story then goes on to say that the power of the Holy Spirit literally came upon Mary and she became pregnant even though she was still a virgin. Now, of course, some people think, well, that must just be a load of religious nonsense. You know, or maybe it was a big cover-up uh, for something that happened, and Mary said it was all an immaculate conception. In fact, there was a survey that was done in the UK among pastors of a major denomination there that found that 27% of pastors in that denomination actually themselves did not believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe Mary was a virgin. Now, is that a problem or is it not a problem? How important is this belief in the virgin birth for us as Christians in, in what we believe about Jesus? So I want to uh, look this morning at the virgin birth as a climax of seven miraculous births that are described in the Bible. There's seven miraculous births described in the Bible to women who otherwise could not have children. The Bible speaks of these women having closed wombs, but God miraculously opened the womb of each one at just the right time, and they conceived and gave birth to a, a child. It was a miracle um, pregnancy, a miracle birth, a miracle child who became the hope of the nation of Israel for that time, for that generation in history. Now, I know when we talk about a term like a closed womb, that's quite like an archaic old school kind of term. And, and I know that infertility is not always about the woman. It equally can be about the man. Um, but I, I want to say this is not really about that. This is about a, a pattern of prophecy in the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to lean in as we, as we look at it this morning. I think you'll find it fascinating. I also know that for many of you, um, many of us here, infertility is a very painful subject something you may have experienced yourself or, or very close at hand. And if you have, you will understand um, the kind of struggles that the women went through that we're going to talk about today and the stories that we're going to talk about today. And you'll identify with them in a deeper, in a deeper way. Okay, on a lighter note, I want to start by introducing you to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This is it. It's the letter Mem. Now, it's the M sound in Hebrew, okay? 
And there's a big difference in case you're already getting confused between a mem and a meme. Okay, this is a meme. You know what that is? It's like a thing on the internet, a picture with a, like a phrase, uh, usually a funny caption. There's another few memes. Um, okay, so that's a meme. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but this letter is not a meme. It's a mem, okay. Um, and the mem comes in, oh wait, go back to the, to the other slide with the two mems on it. Um, the mem comes in two variations. There's a closed mem and there's an open mem. And when a mem uh, comes at the beginning of a word or in the middle of a word, it is open. And when it finishes off the word, it comes at the end of the word, it's closed. That's Hebrew grammar. Um, now, you remember that Hebrew goes backwards. So if it's on the left-hand side, it's actually at the end of the word. Uh, if it's on the right-hand side, it's at the beginning of the word. So why am I showing you a mem when you would much rather see some more memes? Um, because those are more interesting, aren't they? Or maybe not. I hope you'll, you'll get some, some really deep understanding um, of Scripture from this letter mem. The Old Testament in the Bible was actually written in, in Hebrew originally, and so what we have are translations of the Hebrew, but often we lose stuff in translation. So going back, that's why sometimes we go back and we look at the Hebrew and we try and understand the nuances and the meanings of the actual Hebrew. It gives us a fuller, deeper understanding so that we don't lose so much stuff in translation. Now, one of the important things about Hebrew script, like many of the other ancient languages, is it came originally from um, pictures. So each letter was originally a picture, and it eventually developed into a letter, much like hieroglyphics. And so meanings, the Hebrew letters still carry meanings of their own. The letter itself carries meanings. And the Hebrew letter mem carries several meanings, one of which is the womb. It means the womb, and you can see it even looks a bit like a womb. And so a closed mem is also seen as a sign of a closed womb, a womb that is childless, a barren womb, or a virgin's womb. And an open mem is also seen as a sign of an open womb, a womb that bears children. Now, in some senses, the Bible speaks about every womb as being naturally closed. That's the, that's the kind of idea. And God is the one who holds the key. God unlocks the womb. God puts the child in and gives life. Um, there's this idea that God is intimately involved with, in planning and forming every single new life, that no one's a mistake, no one is unplanned, every life is sacred, every life is valuable. Psalm 139 says... For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's a beautiful psalm. The whole psalm is about this, um, about the experience of being in the womb and God um, putting the child together and being intimately involved in the formation of this life. So God is the one, the Bible teaches, who opens or closes every womb. God is the one with the power. God is the one who breathes his breath of life into every new living creature, and in that sense, every single child is a miracle. And yet there's some wombs that God leaves closed. Women who never have children. 
It's one of the most painful burdens that a person can bear. And yet it's out of the pain and the barrenness that God so often brings beautiful and powerful things. And so the Bible tells us about these seven women whose wounds were closed, but where God miraculously intervened, stepped into that situation, and, and each one conceived. And each of these children turned out to be a child of promise, a great prophet, a savior, the hope of their generation. And in some ways, each of those seven births is a picture of the creation of the very first man, Adam, who God himself made with his own hands out of the barren dust of the earth. And, you know, there's no way that dead dust can come to life, but God created human beings and breathed his own breath into the dust, and it became alive. It's kind of the same idea, God creating out of nothing every child, but particularly these children that came from the barren womb, from the closed womb. So the first of these miraculous births is Isaac. Genesis 12, you might remember it, we did a series recently. Genesis 12 tells us that um, when Abraham was 75 years old, 75 years old, God appeared to him and, and promised him, I will give you this land, the land of Canaan, I will give it to your descendants. The problem was Abraham didn't have any descendants. He didn't have any children. But God said, don't worry, I will give you a child. You'll have a child. Well, 10 years go by and no child. And then God again promises Abraham, I'll give you a child. Now he's 85. And Sarah, his wife, is 76. Not really any chance of a child. But does Sarah fall pregnant? No. 13 more years go by. And now Abraham is 99, and Sarah is 90, and God appears again. This time God appears in human form. He stands there in the flesh with two angels, and he comes to Abraham and he says, this time next year, Sarah will have a child. Now Sarah's kind of listening in, and it's so absurd. I mean, she laughs. And yet the next year, she does give birth to a son. Now, the Bible makes a big deal of the fact that Isaac is born from a, a closed womb because there can be no doubt that he is a miracle child. He's not an ordinary child. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. Even though the promise seemed impossible, and even though it seemed impossible at the beginning, and God waited 23 more years. Isaac, though, is a picture of another child, also a child of promise. Also a child that was waited for, that some thought would never come. Now, infertility seems to have been a thing at that time as it is today, because the very self-same thing happens to Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Genesis 25 tells us that Rebecca also couldn't have any children just like her mom-in-law. And then Isaac prayed to God, and God, it says, opened her womb, and she became pregnant with twins. It's her only pregnancy. The only time she falls pregnant, she has twins, no IVF. Um, Esau and Jacob are her two miracle boys, and each of them is very powerful and influential. Each of them becomes the father of a nation, the Edomites and the Israelites. But the Bible follows mostly Jacob's story. And perhaps the most powerful, uh, Perhaps the most uh, well-known story of Jacob is the night that he uh, 
wrestles all night with a man. This man comes to him and they have a fight that goes on the whole night. And um, Jacob realizes this is no ordinary human being that he's wrestling with. And he's, he grabs onto the man. He says, I won't let you go till you bless me. And the man says, okay. He blesses him and he says, I will change your name from Jacob, which means a usurper or a cheat, to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Suddenly Jacob realizes, maybe what he'd already realized, what he'd already known, that he has been wrestling all night with God himself in the flesh. Now the story of Genesis goes on and Jacob marries two women, Leah and Rachel, silly man. Leah has no problem having children, but Rachel, just like uh, her mom-in-law and and her, her grand, um, or Jacob's mother and grandmother, Rachel also can't have any children. And she cries out to God. Genesis 30 says that God listened to her and opened her womb, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, saying, God has taken away my disgrace. It was a deep shame that she felt. And she named this child Joseph. Now, a few weeks ago, I spoke about Joseph. I won't go too much into the story of Joseph. He's a remarkable man. Um, who brought through his life salvation to his family, salvation to his nation, salvation to the the nation of Egypt by rescuing them from, from famine. And all of this is because of his integrity and his faithfulness to God through his suffering. And Joseph, too, is a picture of another Savior, of a greater Savior who will bring not only salvation to his nation, but to the world through his suffering. Now, there are two other stories in the Old Testament of children who are born of closed wombs. The first one is in Judges chapter, well, the next one is in Judges chapter 13. It tells us about a man named Manoah and his wife. You might not remember that story. It's a bit more obscure. Uh, but it tells us that they, that they couldn't have any children. And one day a man appears to Manoah's wife and says to her, even though you've been unable to have children, You will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. He will rescue Israel from the Philistines. The story continues, and they have a conversation with this man. They try and find out more, and then he disappears in fire, and they suddenly realize we have been in the presence of God. In fact, Manoah's wife says, we are doomed to die. We have seen God, but they don't die. The next year, she does have a baby. They name him Samson. Now, you might know this part of the story. And he's a very powerful, he becomes a very powerful powerful national leader who breaks the military control of the Philistines over the nation of Israel that were in servitude to the Philistines. He delivers the nation. He's also the strongest man in the Bible. And he, like others, is a picture of another great deliverer who is also born of a closed womb who will save his people from their sins. In fact, what was interesting for me as I, as I looked at this this week is that this, the phrase that this man uses with Manoah's wife is almost the same as the phrase that the angel Gabriel uses when he speaks to Mary. The last child in the Old Testament who's born of a closed womb that we told about is Samuel. Samuel is the last and the greatest judge of Israel, great prophet with a very deep and intimate relationship with God. And Samuel's father 
Elkanah, also a foolish man, had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Just like the story of, of uh, Jacob, Peninnah had no problem having children. She had a whole lot of children, but Rachel, uh, sorry, but Hannah couldn't have children. Um, and it, it caused this huge anguish for her intention in the family. And one day, as a family, they go to the tabernacle, kind of like the, the big main church of, of the whole nation. They go to the tabernacle to worship. And, and Hannah just goes in and she weeps and she weeps and she prays. And she says, God, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate that child completely to you. The priest Eli finds her there, thinks she's drunk, and then she explains the story, and he says, God has heard you, and you will give birth to a son, and she does. And she names him Samuel. And when he's seven, she brings him to the tabernacle, and he serves God there all of his life. Now, you might remember that story, probably the most well-known story of Samuel. When he's a little boy, and he's lying in the, in the tabernacle in front of, of the ark, and he hears a voice calling him, Samuel, Samuel. And, and he thinks it's Eli the priest. So he gets up and he runs to Eli and he says, hey, you called me, here I am. And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And then the same thing happens again. The voice calls Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to Eli again. And Eli says, then he twigs. He, know, he, he says, I know what's going on here. He says, this is the voice of God and this is how you must answer. And so Samuel goes back to bed and then the voice comes again. Samuel, Samuel. So the book of 1 Samuel verse 3 says this. Um, sorry, chapter 3 verse 10 says, The Lord came and stood there, calling at, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord came and stood there. Have you ever noticed that before? The Lord came and stood there. I don't know if you've picked up a consistency in these stories. For each one of these children that's born of, from a closed womb, God appears in the flesh, in person, and stands there. Not only are they people of remarkable uh, calling, special calling, but God appears in flesh, either at the announcement of their birth or at the, the announcement or the, at the point of their calling. God appears. Now, the only one who we don't, is, is not recorded in the Bible is Joseph. There's no story of that with Joseph. But what's interesting is in Jewish tradition, in Jewish legends, they do say there's a belief that God also appeared to Joseph when he was struggling with temptation with, from Potiphar's wife. So if you take that into account, every single one of them has this encounter with God in the flesh, or God in the flesh is part, God appears. Now, when, when that happens, we, we call it a theophany. It's a, it's a fancy theological word for an appearance or, or a revealing of God. There are only a handful of times that this happens in the Bible. For those of us, and many of us would say this is actually Jesus appearing. Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, appearing there in his incarnate, a pre-incarnate state, um, that when we have a theophany that it's actually Jesus, we call it a Christophany, a revealing of Christ. Either way, there's only a few times in the Bible that God appears or Jesus appears um, in the Old Testament in flesh and stands there in, in, in human form. But it is a pattern with children born from the closed womb, the physical appearance of God. It's very fascinating. 
Now, the New Testament continues with story number six, when an angel appears to a priest whose name is Zechariah, tells him that his aged wife, who's been barren all her life, is going to have a baby. He doesn't believe it. He says, can't be true. But the baby comes anyway, and they call him John. He's the one we know as John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets before him. And then finally, the seventh and the last birth of, from a closed womb is Jesus himself. An angel, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, who's a virgin, and tells her you're going to have a baby. And Mary's confused, and she wants to know, how is this going to happen because I'm a virgin? And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of of God. All the pregnancies and the births that we've looked at so far, Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph, Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist are all prefigurations, they're all foreshadows, they're all hints at Jesus, of Jesus himself. And just as they were born from closed wombs and just as they were the hope for their generation, the hope for their nation, the greatest of all who is the hope for all nations, is born not just from a closed womb, but from a virgin's womb. You see, there's a very sacred reason for the virgin birth. It's the definitive sign or a definitive sign that Jesus is the ultimate child of promise, is the perfect Savior, is the most powerful judge, is the greatest of the prophets, and he is also the one who comes and stands there at the birth or at the calling of every other child born from a closed womb in the Old Testament. Now, at the beginning of this message, I read to you from Isaiah's prophecy, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, that prophecy of Isaiah carries on and develops and comes to a kind of a culmination in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, uh, which Aaron read earlier. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So who is this child that Isaiah speaks about that's going to be born of a virgin that will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God? Well, you're going like, I can switch off now because I know the answer to that. I read it on a Christmas card. It's Jesus. So perhaps it would surprise you, it might surprise you to know that the word, the Hebrew word Alma, which we translate as virgin there, was translated as virgin in our Bibles, does not necessarily mean virgin. It can mean any young woman of marriageable age. Usually it does refer to a virgin, but not necessarily, not in Hebrew. So lots of scholars have looked at that and argued that, you know, Isaiah wasn't writing about Jesus. Isaiah was writing about a woman in his own day, maybe his wife, not about Mary. And then as the prophecy continues, it's not exactly clear whether 
Isaiah is speaking about the same child all the way through, or if it's different, a different child, when he, certainly when he gets to chapter 9, some people say, no, no, he's talking here about the King Hezekiah that's going to be born, the birth of King Hezekiah. So why do Christians then take this to be a prophecy about Jesus? And if it is about Jesus, why do we have the audacity to translate Alma as virgin rather than young woman? I'm just putting it out there. Let's explore it. I think there are three reasons that we believe it refers to Jesus and that it refers to a virgin. And the first is that all the ancient prophecies in the Bible actually have double meanings. They're, they mean something always literally for their own generation, and they hint at something for the future. It's a picture of something in the future. It's not at all strange that Isaiah might have been talking about a child of his own, in his own generation, maybe even his own child, his own son, but also hinting that this child is a prefiguration, a foreshadow of the Messiah who's going to come. The second reason we believe this refers to Jesus is that the words of the passage say he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these words definitely speak of somebody greater than King Hezekiah or any other human being. The Bible would never use a phrase like that to refer, the phrase Mighty God, to refer to a human being. There's a clear indication that this is looking forward to somebody else. God in the flesh. And the third reason is that the ancient Hebrew rabbis, especially the Kabbalists, who are the, who are the mystics, did actually believe that this passage, when it talked about the Alma, was referring to a virgin, and that this was a, a prophecy about the Messiah. From about, let me give you a bit of history here and explain, I'll explain why. From about 320 BC, when Alexander the Great came through and conquered the Middle East, Greek became the predominant language of the Middle East. And so by um, 132 BC, I'll tell you why that, that uh, date is important now, most Jews actually spoke Greek, not Hebrew. They couldn't even read their own scriptures uh, because they were speaking Greek. And so, at, in 132 BC, that's 132 years before Jesus, quite a long time before, 70 priests, 70 rabbis, in fact, got together and they said, we need to translate the Scriptures, which was then the Old Testament, into Greek, because people can't understand Hebrew anymore. And so they began this arduous, long task of translating the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, into Greek. We call that version of the Bible the Septuagint. It means the 70, 70 rabbis. It's very, very important key in, in helping to understand and unlock some of the understandings of the, of the ancient Hebrew Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. When the 70 rabbis got to Isaiah 7, they translated the word Alma, which can mean virgin or just young woman, they translated it into the Greek word Parthenos. And Parthenos does literally mean virgin only, specifically. So when they came to that point, they were the most learned, the learned Hebrew scholars at the time. They believed 
so firmly that this referred to a virgin that they translated it as virgin. Why would they do that? Why were they so convinced? This is perhaps the most interesting part of all, I think, because there is a tiny clue hidden in the text which leads us to this conclusion. At the culmination of this passage, it says there's this word greatness, of the increase or of his greatness. Let me just find it. Um, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the greatness of his government. Some versions say of the increase of his government, there will be no, no, no end. And this word greatness or increase in Hebrew is marba. It starts with a mem, mm, marba, okay? And you remember that the mem at the beginning of the word or in the middle of the word has to be open. That's how Hebrew grammar works, and at the end of the word it's closed. Well, this word starts with a mem, and it's written as a closed mem. It's the only word, it's the only closed mem in the whole of the Bible at the beginning or in the middle of a word. It's actually grammatically incorrect to put it at the beginning of the word. And yet every, this is not once, this wasn't a typo, it wasn't a mistake, every ancient copy, hundreds and hundreds of them have been meticulously copied with a closed mem at the beginning of the word greatness. It's a clue. And many people would look at it and say it's a clue as to how great and how powerful and who exactly this wonderful counselor is. He is born of a closed womb. And this womb is the most closed of all. It is a virgin's womb. Now Jesus' birth brings to fulfillment every picture in scripture of prophets and priests and patriarchs and saviors and children of promise that have been born of closed wombs. He is the one to whom all these stories and all these pictures point. It's a very beautiful thread in scripture. But what does it say to us today? I think apart from the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth, theological importance, I think it says this and this is more on a personal level, that God chooses to bring powerful things from places of barrenness and suffering. And perhaps the child that is born of the closed womb doesn't only represent Jesus the Messiah, but all of God's plan, which is that every child and every vision and every endeavor and every life that emerges through great struggle and in complete dependence on God's miraculous hand, God breathes into. And so if you are struggling with Barrenness of the womb, or barrenness of the soul, or barrenness in your, in your circumstances or in your home. I want to say, look up to God and ask Him for a miracle. Ask Him to breathe His life into the barren, that barren space in your life and do something miraculous which you could not do yourself. 
And if God has given you a promise, hold on to that promise and trust Him to bring it to fulfillment, even if it takes 23 years, even if it takes 1,000 years, and even if there seems no hope. Because it's when we give up hope in our own natural abilities, our own intelligence, our own power, our own wisdom, our own technology, at that point that God is able to act in ways that are far beyond what we could ever imagine or achieve in the strength of our humanness. So now as we close, I want to just encourage you that if there is some area of barrenness in your life or your work or your calling or your home or even in your womb, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we pray. And I'm going to pray for God to do a miracle and bring life into that space of barrenness. So won't you pray? If you, if you want to stand up, and even if it's for somebody else, I want to pray for you. Father God, I thank you for each person here who stands, who in each mind, in each heart, there is something where they feel a sense of, of emptiness, of barrenness. And each one is standing and asking, God, will you breathe your ruach, your breath, into that place, and will you create something beautiful and powerful? And so, God, we want to hand over control. We want to hand over our dependence on ourselves and our technology and our intelligence and our strength. We want to hand it over to you and say, God, will you do something where humans can no longer do anything? Will you breathe your life? Will you create something beautiful for us? Will you create something beautiful and powerful for this generation from every space of barrenness? We ask you this in Jesus' name, by your power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please will you be seated and invite John just to close for us. John Ray, thank you so much. Uh, as I listen to to genre, one of the things I love about our church is that, is that there are so many genres of hearing God's word. And, and to hear and to dig and to think about things that took thousands of years. And then also to know that that's an immensely practical faith. The story isn't meant to be about seven husbands and wives who couldn't have children or, or, or one miraculous birth. It's meant to be a story that speaks to all of us. I heard a, somebody say this week, the problem with being a Christian is it's such a daily thing. It's such a daily thing. And what's beautiful as we celebrate Christmas and as we celebrate Advent and as we wait for the 25th, we are encouraged to go out there and be the daily thing. That we go out there and bring the hope and love and joy to a barren world a world that has given up, a world that's just going to party because they need to forget. And so I'm going to invite you, as the last thing we do now, to stand again and receive 
the blessing of God. The blessing that says we await the promised Messiah from a place that, from which nothing can come. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now, I send you out in the name of God our Father, in the power and love of Jesus our Savior, and in the grace and mercy of our Holy Spirit. Go and remember that Jesus is coming and coming soon and coming to make all things new. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.